0: It's super easy. Just go to Current.com slash OK, O-K-A-Y,
1: and download the app. That's Current.com slash OK. Current is a financial technology company, not a bank. Banking services provided by Choice Financial Group, member FDIC, and Cross River Bank, member FDIC. Welcome to OK Computer. I am Dan Nathan. I am here
0: with Rick Heitzman, my co-host from First Mark Capital. Rick, welcome back to OK Computer.
2: Welcome back. Happy holidays. It's the most wonderful time of the year.
0: It really is. You know, yesterday I get home and I see this thing. It doesn't even fit in my mailbox here. And it is like literally like a a two by four of chocolate that's marked with first mark. Happy holidays, that sort of thing. I'm just saying to myself, what is he trying to do to me? You know, some of my goals, you know, some of my goals for 2023.
2: It's not 2023 yet. This is the holidays. <laughs> this, is, this is the holidays. You, you ramp up. If you ramp up to ramp down, it's a time of celebration.
0: All right. Well, listen, you know, I could eat Fon- that chocolate, chocolate e-
2: fondue, chocolate, yeah. ice cream topping, just chocolate with chocolate, man. It's all good. All right, well,
0: I could, I could eat it every day for the next, <laughs> you know, like three months and I won't finish it. But thank you to, to I, my I, friends. About, and It's a challenge. And, and, and listen, and I do want to thank you very honestly for, for a, your participation on OK Computer this year. We've had a really fun year doing this. We started it, I think, all the way back in January. You and I have been kind of plugging away. We've had tons of great guests that that have been in the First Mark family. So, of our mutual friends, all of our co hosts throughout the year. So, thank you to you and our friends at First Mark. And just so you know, you and I are going to talk about a lot of things, tech. There's been a couple fun things. I feel like we book ended this year with Tomo Bravo taking some big. SaaS companies, private. After Rick and I talk all things tech, that's the here and now, I am joined by Ann Bordetsky. She is a partner over at NEA. That's new enterprise associate a venture capital firm. She's also a former operator. She was a chief operating officer at Rival, which sold to Live Nation. She's worked at Uber. She's worked at Twitter. We got a lot to talk about. So stick around for my conversation with Ann. But we got to talk about this. Let's start with this, Rick. You know, I feel like in January of this year, when we started OK Computer, I think you were very much in tune with the fact that there was going to be a bit of a sea change from a top down sort of macro thing. And that was going to be the Federal Reserve here in the U.S., their change of interest rate policy. They had signaled in November of 2021 that they were going to be raising interest rates coming up this zero interest rate bound. They had this very accommodative monetary policy where they were buying 120 billion dollars worth of bonds each month right so that what they were trying to do they were trying to stimulate whether they be businesses whether they be individuals to kind of go further out on the risk curve and spend and then we had this unusual bout of inflation 40-year highs the fed said We are done with easy monetary policy and we're gonna raise interest rates. And at that point, it was like literally to the day, the NASDAQ, okay, in public markets topped out. And then you and I were talking about what is the lag? When will we start seeing this work its way through the private market? So talk to me a little bit about it. 2022 has been very volatile. If you're to look at the NASDAQ and say, eh, down 26, 27%, not so bad. It was up at least that in 2021, right? From here on out. How does this play out?
2: So we've been talking for a little over a year now, Dan. We, it was, I think it was a guess even before we kicked off OKC in earnest. And we were concerned, even going back to our, our times on CNBC together uh, two years ago, uh, we were concerned that the party was, might have been raging too hard and the hangover was going to be pretty bad. And we, we were very concerned in the summer of 2021 that that felt very toppy. And then when things started to crack a little bit around this time last year in the fourth quarter, we said, to, you know, put your seatbelts on. This is going to be a rocky road, and it's not going to be over overnight. We were quick to call that this is going to be a fundamental change, and the boom, boom days of zero interest rates are behind us. You know, I, I think, sadly, we were, we were right. I mean, it was one of the worst years for asset management in a long time, only one of five years since the Great Depression, where both stocks and bonds were down. You know, what, what's happened is that, as always, you know, the, the, the public stock market reacts quickest because the feedback loop is the shortest. The private markets, there's just a lag. I mean, there's partially a lag because Silicon Valley, which is still where most of the assets are held, is about 3,000 miles away from Wall Street, and therefore the feedback loop's different, and they're less asset management focused as opposed to thinking about maybe other things out there. So, you know, that feedback loop isn't as harsh. And, you know, so I therefore, where are we today and you know we we're on with our good friend scott wapner last week of you know how you know have, have we gotten to halfway across the lake and are we at a good place right now as we think about it yeah, you know, maybe we're in the fifth inning sixth inning in the in the public markets and that it feels like we're, we're, we're bouncing around a bottom that the best companies will bounce out of that bottom quickly Maybe some companies that aren't as good might stick on that bottom or even have a step down as some of the companies still haven't done the basics that we talked about in the beginning of the year of profitability, cash efficiency, unit economics, that you need to be able to explain your business either to a kindergartner or to a public market analyst of why you exist in the world. So in that world has changed, but I think that the lag in the private markets is still there. The canary in the coal mine is always IPO listed it's been a disaster of a year from that perspective as you and i spend a lot of time both at the nasdaq and the new York stock exchange it looks like first quarter is is not going to reopen you know i think the optimists are saying second quarter you could start to see some high quality public financings at a not a premium price but at least that'll begin to have the mechanics of the market moving. Although the IPO market has generally been shut this year, maybe different than prior recessions, what you've seen is the private equity buyers have kind of stepped into that breach and have been the buyer of last resort or the fallback option of someone put their hand up and saying, wow, at this price, I'm a buyer.
0: So that's a great point. I, I think we started this year, one of our first pods, we were talking about this, I think it was like a $30 billion fund that Tomo Bravo raised, right? Right out of the gates this year. And then they started, putting it to work and you know you just use this expression buyer last resort I think they were being really opportunistic right and so this week we see a huge deal an eight billion dollar deal for a company that I think at its lows this is Copa Software yeah was down you know more than 60 some percent but they're buying it at a premium of like 50 percent or so more to the lows that it was just trading in the public markets so talk about that because again this seems like opportunistic capital being put to work and especially because because it was raised at a time where interest rates are pretty low. They're probably seeing what they think are some pretty unique valuations at this point.
2: That's exactly what they're saying. And there's some large funds, you know, there's the Vista and the Toma Brava really focused on technology, especially SaaS software. But then you're seeing the traditional buyout funds, the Apollos, the KKR's, Apollo did famously the Yahoo deal, KKR did GoDaddy and a number of other software companies from a buyout perspective. And what they're saying is the multiples have gone down enough, prices have gone down enough that these are really attractive assets. And they're actually willing to pay premiums to the existing multiples. And Coupa got done a little over eight times revenue, which is a premium of about 40% to where the SaaS index trade on a next 12 months basis. So what you're seeing is, hey, there's someone stepping into that breach and saying, hey, these are good assets and they're cheap and I'm not going to let this fall. I'm going to take advantage and be aggressive in what they believe is an oversold market.
0: You know, here's another thing. It was a theme that we started talking about in January. I think it was our very first pod. It was called sins of bad due diligence. And I think I was quoting something that you Did had they said quote that, that
2: in one of the FTX articles? Yeah, they, well, well, they better, so I, I
0: should have trademarked that. Again, this was January 5th of 2022, Rick. We were talking about maybe valuations that were being paid or you know, market opportunities that were not probably picked over particularly well. And here's a situation, and again, you and I have been through different cycles in markets, right? We saw all these kind of bullshit ideas in the late 90s that had a lot of money thrown at it. Maybe they were just kind of too early or they just had some hucksters running the shows. We saw all that stuff implode, and then there was stuff that rose from the ashes, right? And then into the financial crisis, into the the housing thing, there was all these kind of fugazi stuff going on. And every step of the way, there is fraud uncovered after you have a bubble kind of inflate and then burst. And so here we are last night, Sam Bankman-Freed, he's finally indicted. A lot of people were wondering how he could not have been already. And when you think about this and you look at the sort of VCs and the sophisticated investors in FTX, and how little due diligence they did on the guy, on the business that they were supposedly building, on the tech. We're kind of bookending some stuff here. So, so talk to me, and, and then do you think this is just kind of like the tip of the iceberg? They got a big whale here, but might there be a lot of minnows you know, swimming below the water?
2: You, you don't know who's naked until the tide goes out. I think you've seen the tide go out. And now some of those chickens are coming home to roost to completely mix metaphors of, you know, hey, you're seeing which companies didn't really have it now that you're really forced to perform. And it could be complete frauds like FTX, who seemed like they had momentum. And if you didn't do diligence, it was easy to lean into what seemed to be, as Fortune Magazine called it, the next Buffett or the next Berkshire. Or there's some business models that just didn't work. If you look at the consolidation and you know the existential crises the fast delivery workers are doing, or you know, where all the scooter companies are today, that would seem like an irrational business model at the time, but people pour billions of dollars into both those business models and it might not exist in the future. So what you're seeing is hey. People didn't care about things like unit economics, long-term organization and, and industry structure, and people didn't really care about even the, the folks that they were investing in. I think that that lesson's being learned in a very harsh way as you know, you're you seeing some venture firms, to their credit, stand up and and apologize in the Wall Street Journal to their investors for not being as diligent as they could have hoped. A lot of firms are still hiding but I think you're, you're going to see these lessons being learned, and I think you're probably going to see a few more business models, companies, and even firms fall victim to being too lazy about due diligence and being driven by FOMO and not fundamentals in their 2020 and 2021 investment decisions.
0: Do you think there'll be any meaningful changes in VC? I mean, again, these are some storied franchises investing in this sort of thing and losing money. And to have that sort of come to Jesus and outright apologize, you know, the VC model, I don't need to tell you about it. If you have a few dozens of things hit in a fund, that's how you make your bones. That's how you make your returns. So you're wrong a lot. That's part of like the kind of embedded structure of the process here. But to lose money in a way that just seems like you Abandoned abandon all of the fundamentals of what you do to actually have fraud perpetrated on you for not asking the right questions. It seems like it's going to lead to some sort of like wholesale changes in VC.
2: So to give you a little inside baseball is even if we talk about it internally here at FirstMark, you know, there's a million different ways to lose money. Some of them are fine. You know, my industry might take longer to develop. There might be an orthogonal risk that was unforeseen. But not doing your work, not doing your diligence, not thinking through the risk factors going into an investment are, are kind of less forgivable sins. So that's very clear across the industry or within a fund, and it's incredibly important if you're gonna be an investor of other people's money. So that's, that's really important. Some firms had gotten away from it at a time where things got very overheated. And I think what you're gonna see is two things. You're gonna see the firms are gonna persist, and Squia Capital is, is an amazing firm, and I would give them my money tomorrow if they would take it despite some of the chop recently. They're, they're gonna be fine, they're gonna persist. They're, they're one of, if not the best venture capital firm in the world. they might change some policies and then you're going to see probably half of the venture firms cease to exist and they're either companies that didn't do the work did poor work or just got unlucky and they just can't return capital based on how hard they might have been leading into 20 and 2021 and either the prices they paid or the companies they backed. So half the firms go away. And I think the firms that remain are probably gonna remain because they were more diligent and because they were more thoughtful, and that'll reinforce those ethoses.
0: Here's something that from a venture capitalist, who I think is gonna be around for a little bit, and as a friend of both of ours, Jeff Richards at GGV. And he tweeted this out earlier, and I thought this is kind of interesting. 2022 headlines, innovation in tech is dead. He says, Q, chat, GPT. Fusion breakthrough, et cetera. Innovation doesn't take a break because interest rates went up. So let, let's talk about that because again, I think a lot of us in public markets like me and private markets like you, we've spent a lot of time on the volatility, right? On A lot of macro and it's easy to kind of overlook some of the stuff, the people that you invest in who got heads down, Building, They don't care where interest rates are. They don't care where the NASDAQ is. They don't care what some goofy pundit has to say on a podcast or some show on, on CNBC or something like that. They're just building. Do you try, when I think about your diet as it, as it relates to information and what you're taking in, the people that you're talking to you, do you try to just drill down on some of these things where Three weeks ago, no one was talking about chat GPT. And then last week, everyone's obsessed with it. It's all over Twitter. I was at dinners with like VC folks and this and that or whatever, where they were substituting conversation that we might have over dinner with, wait, 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 do this prop and then ask it this and then this and that and being really entertained. And you can see all of the potential innovation disrupting so many different industries. And then this fusion thing, I'm just too dumb to get any of it, but I'm sure it's going to be a big, big thing. Talk to me a little bit about that, because sometimes it's really important to separate the forest from the the, the market trees.
2: I, I think the two things you hit on were completely right. That great entrepreneurs don't really care about anything else except pushing forward their idea. You know, Ben Silberman at Pinterest, founded Pinterest, quit Google right after uh, the fall of Lehman Brothers. They said, well, you know, it must be weird that it seems like the economies falling apart and you're leaving one of the strongest companies in tech and he said you know basically i have to start this company the best entrepreneurs aren't looking at market timers aren't looking for momentum and frankly aren't looking for validation from anyone else to say now is the right time and that's that's who we're looking for now the second piece is how do you get ahead of the curve and how are you thinking about tomorrow even even if today doesn't seem that bright we've been looking at ai and especially generative ai which is kind of the subsector you're talking about for years and we you know, we're been investors in th- in synthesia for 3 or 4 years we've been investors in hyperscience so we think about processing document processing text-based processing. So we're constantly looking at where that edge is. And I have the benefit of having some great partners who are looking at all different sectors. We all stay up to speed because we're investing for the long run. One of our key thematics is having the longest view in the room and the longest view of the room, innovation matters and longest view in the room, innovation wins. You have to pick your time where you buy and sell securities along the way. If we're helping people build companies, they'll continue to build companies regardless of economic environment.
0: Let's just say at some point in 2023, a lot of these kind of macro headwinds that have caused a lot of volatility in both public and private markets, let's say it comes to an end at some point, right? And we enter this kind of new bull market. We enter a period where financial conditions are a bit more conducive to company creation, value creation and the like, okay? And if you go back and you think in the wake of the financial crisis, 08, 09, the convergence between mobile, social, broadband, you've talked about it a lot. We've read a lot about it, and you just think of all of these amazing companies that were formed in that time period. Are you optimistic that let's assume that we find some sort of bottom within the next Three to 12 months, or something like that, that we will have a 10 year period like we had coming out of the financial crisis. Like we will look back and say, the pandemic bore this sort of innovation or this whole group of companies.
2: I think there will be something. I don't know if it's the pandemic, I think it might just be the business cycles. When you look back at the late 90s, and that's probably the closest we see to this in the late 90s a lot of things were funded because capital was free in the internet sector then so you're going to see a lot of companies that were seeded during the pandemic when there was tons of money floating around that you made it might have never been funded based on fundamentals, but those entrepreneurs had an opportunity and they're going to grow great businesses. You know, it's funny, some of the seed funds I knew from back then went out of business, but they had a couple of great companies in their portfolio that they didn't even know at the time. You're going to see that again, that just the amount of people who got their shot at entrepreneurship in the last two years is awesome. And you're going to see some amazing entrepreneurs out of that. And then I think you're generally not riding necessarily an event-driven wave like that you're probably riding more of a secular wave, but probably the most important thing is you're riding a technology wave. The technology wave that people were riding then was um, omnipresent broadband. They were also riding the wave of mobility, right? So every, everybody now had a computer in their pocket, and I don't think Steve Jobs was necessarily concerned about the interest rate environment when he when he delivered the iphone so i think there's a couple of different things that which can be that new new platform i think generative ai and some of the things that are going on in ai are really interesting really exciting i think there's some things going on in healthcare and financial services on the consumer side which are interesting and exciting and i think you're going to see new platforms and new business models emerge from that which a lot of people are going to wish they spent more time on instead of licking their wounds in 2022.
0: Last question before we get out of here, because uh, again, we've spent a lot of time on OK Computer talking about Elon Musk, the Musk empire. And just as we were talking about SBF, I mean, the cult of personality that is surrounded by him and everything he touches. and, And going back to that whole situation of you see who's, you know, swimming naked when the tide goes out, I feel like a lot of the stuff in and around him, the worship of innovation and his ability to kind of do things that supposedly no one else can do, it seems like it's coming to an end. And I, I just wonder, when I'm, I'm not saying he's coming to an end, I'm not saying Tesla's coming to an end or SpaceX or anything like that, but the worship of him, it seems like the premium for the companies that he's helped create is coming out as it relates to him. So I'm curious, will we be spending a lot less time in 2023 talking about Elon Musk? Because I really feel like he dominated both private and public market conversations, and then dictated a whole heck of a lot of other conversations as it relates to media and politics. And and to be frank, it seemed very unhealthy. And and so how do unhealthy things find some sort of, I guess, conclusion? You almost have to have a bit of a lighting. So I'm just curious. Yeah,
2: or, or people have to get sick of it, right? So I think, you know, people were wondering, 24 months ago, can he really run two big companies in both SpaceX and Tesla. And then maybe he flew a little bit too close to the sun trying to run three companies and going from being an incredible engineer and big brain who's, who's focused on interplanetary travel or, or rare earth materials to power a car to being a media celebrity. Clearly he has 131 million followers I think on Twitter. You know, about a third of the whole Twitter population is following him, and it's very different designing rockets to being clever in 140 characters. And so I think that eventually people are going to be worn out by that. Differently than you, I think he's actually going to do a pretty good job running Twitter. I think there'll be a tremendous amount of controversy as he takes away things like the Safety Council, and he's done some things that were almost a logical extreme of his own beliefs. So I think that it's going to be jagged, and you're going to see stuff pop up in the news all the time but i think twitter will persist i think there's such a network effect there it's going to be hard for it not to persist but i think at some point people are going to get tired of talking about elon musk and i hope that there's going to be more interesting more positive better stories in 23.
0: Yeah. And I just want to make one point. I'm not trying to uh, correct you on here. You just refer to him as an engineer and you know, insinuated that he's like a rocket scientist. He is not that. He is not an engineer, He's not a computer scientist. He's not a rocket scientist. And and despite him trying to do a lot of fun stuff on Twitter as it relates to geopolitics, he's not a political scientist. So this goes back to the point about due diligence. People have been throwing their money at Elon Musk for 12, 13 years or so. And I think this is the sort of record. All of these jackoffs who put their money into this Twitter deal to help support his equity to be along with him at $44 billion, they've just incinerated it, right? And what are the bankers doing who are holding the debt that they basically pledged to him, you know, six or seven months ago? They're trying anything to get out of that for him to kind of basically pay it down. It's very true. you've been you've been saying it for months that that obviously his bet on
2: Twitter is a lever bet on Tesla, which is trading incredible multiples. So uh, once there you see a crack in Tesla and things start to go down, his effective margin on on Tesla is going to create a huge contagion, and it's almost unfair to the Tesla shareholders that he's doing this stuff, which you know might be too clever by half. It's already happening if you see the value destruction in Tesla.
0: I, I've been saying this for a while. I don't think he's gonna be the CEO of Tesla for too much longer. I doubt he'll be the CEO of Twitter, especially if you're given what's going on with the company, what's going on with the user base, what's going on with the advertisers. So I suspect he's just gonna be the CEO of the private company SpaceX in 2023, where he can do whatever the hell he wants. All right, listen, Rick, I really appreciated this conversation, your insights, all of your contributions to OK Computer in 2022. And I really look forward to a great 2023. Look forward to 23, everybody. All right, man. Thanks. All right, stick around. Ann Bordesky from NEA joins me in just a minute.
1: and Cross River Bank member FDIC. With CME Group's micro-sized futures and options, you can access the same transparency and liquidity of the benchmark contracts with less upfront financial commitment. Diversify your portfolio and manage your exposure with the flexibility of CME Group micro-contracts in crypto, metals, FX, energy and equity indices. Learn more about what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com micros.
0: Welcome back to OK Computer. I'm Dan Nathan. I am joined by Ann Bordetsky, a partner at NEA. Ann, welcome to OK Computer.
3: Thanks, Dan. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to chat with you.
0: You know, you and I did one of those things where we had a chat uh, a couple months ago and we're like, you know, this would be a really good podcast. And those are like the best guests when you just kind of meet somebody and just uh, full disclosure, good friend of the pod, Sally Shin made the intro. I was just really excited to speak to you. You're a storied career in tech, in business development, at Twitter, at Uber, Rival, which I got to know a, a little bit there. To me, I love those career arcs. I'm sure being in and around Silicon Valley and operating at those sorts of places. I'm sure you were very familiar with the the VC business. So I'd love to know what what led you there, what led you into the VC business? Because you've been there for what, at NEA for almost a couple of years. I'd love to see how you got there and what are some of your initial impressions?
3: all credit to Sally for introducing us. When I met Dan, it was like, how did we not know each other before? Those are (laughs) always the best moments. Look, I spent most of my career building venture backed startups, right at various stages, you know, some were very pioneering kind of category creating before their time, companies like Better Place, which was focused on EV charging, you know, long before EVs were cool, and hyper growth companies like Uber, Twitter, you know, really kind of iconic consumer products, consumer brands. And I would say like my thread line throughout my career has been, I am really drawn to innovation that fundamentally improves and kind of disrupts industries for the better. And that can come in many different forms. but you know, like I want to move the needle in the world. Right. And I think one of the best ways to move the needle in the world and have impact is to build incredible products that people love and use and that make our lives better. Right. And there are many different ways to do that. So after trying my hand at building startups in a lot of different ways, uh, you know, I think it was kind of a natural transition to come to the investor side of the table I will say, though, I feel like I joined at the craziest time possible, <laughs> really. I mean, I, I, I literally entered institutional venture. I'd done some angel investing before. You know, I'd been around venture. I had kind of an idea of it. I think I even had like a, an internship in venture back in the day in business school. I joined the very peak of the market and I came into venture. I just thought, this is wild this is absolutely wild. I mean, rounds were getting done incredibly fast, right? No one was taking time to get to know each other. It was just like a transactional volume game, you know, see a lot of companies, try not to miss out, go, 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 very FOMO driven, very frothy. And as a former operator, I was like, I was kind of cringing, you know, like I had the cringe face of like, oh, this is not going to work out well because, You know, investors and founders were literally not taking the time and effort required to get to know each other to figure out if a foundational relationship was going to be an enduring partnership that could serve both sides. A lot of things just seemed a little bit like, whoa, this is going to catch up to us in some way. And now, what, I don't know, 18 months later, almost two years later, we're like, oh, shit. (laughs) We're in a total market downturn and reset. And I kind of think I got to see both the peak and the trough within a very short period of time, not to mention the pandemic itself and how disruptive that was to our ecosystem. So it's wild, but, you know, it's a great way to learn a lot in less than two years. When people ask me, like, oh, what's it like to be in venture? Like, what's going on? And like the best analogy I can come up with, and I keep going back to this, it's like we're living the movie The Hangover. In the peak, good times, everyone went to Vegas, party, did things they shouldn't have done, took too many shots, you know, not literally, but figuratively, and then wake, you know, the entire sort of ecosystem woke up the next day, like bruised and battered, like which way is up and what happened last night. And I think in a lot of ways we're going through that process now as both investors and founders. Gosh, like where are we? What happened, and how do we move forward from here?
0: Well, well, let me know when you get the digital camera with all the pictures and the post-credit scenes of The Hangover because that that is going to be some good stuff. <laughs> you know, you and I were going back and forth on email after our first conversation, and I noticed that in your like digital signature on your email, you have a, a link to and user manual. And it's pretty yeah. fascinating stuff because I love it. You talk about right out of the gate. And I'm assuming that this is for entrepreneurs that you're having conversations with who are pitching you, or maybe they're your portfolio companies. But on the communication segment, it said, please bring the energy. Then it says I'm direct. I ask a lot of questions, and then you're like clear and concise communication is highly appreciated. And I'm like, wait, is this a user manual for a podcast? I'm like, what you know, like we're, we're kind of going down parallel oh, paths maybe. here. No, I I really <laughs> but, I, I, yeah. I really like that. But talk to me a little bit. Let's let's take a step back here because you talked about these life changing sort of businesses. You want to go after the big stuff, and I think about the first two companies when I look at your CV here, and you know Twitter, and we've all obviously. Spent a lot of time thinking about it, probably more so than we want to of late, especially in the tech community. But what was it like joining a company like that? Looks like back in 2013, and that must have been right around the time that they went public. You know, they were born, Mm -hmm. and, and very similar to what you just described is kind of born into a boom period, into a crash period, and then really coming out of the financial crisis in those years and confluence from a tech perspective of mobile, social, broadband. You guys were like a rocket ship out of the gate.
3: Yeah, and that's exactly what I wanted. I wanted to join a rocket ship. I wanted to see and like feel what it's like to build a rocket ship hyper growth company. And at the time, I mean, Twitter was an incredibly special place, not only like the hottest consumer product out there, but just the power of a, of a product that was part of the world and reshaping the fabric of the world and providing a platform to people. I mean, I think now that we're all sort of co-creating Twitter every day as we participate in it, we kind of forget how special it was. At the beginning, to create something that was truly a public square where a politician and a celebrity and a normal person and just anyone could connect all across the world. I mean, it was amazing. And so, what originally drew me to join Twitter was the fact that it was clearly a very special product that was going to be important in the world. And the people at the company really saw kind of the broader mission of opening up communication globally. I joined Twitter because there was an amazing opportunity to join the business development team, be part of building Twitter commerce, which at the time was Twitter's early attempt to sort of diversify away from an ad based revenue model and to create new business lines that could fuel growth, fuel revenue expansion for the company as it went public and was really competing with Facebook, right, for scale and for, you know, investor confidence. And so here's the thing about Twitter, it is and I think this is universal across many Twitter alumni, no matter which chapter you were part of, it was very clear, you know, working at Twitter that the company was magical, but also chaotic, and in some ways represented the product itself, very vociferous company culture, everyone had a voice, but it was really hard to get alignment, really hard to get things done, and very precious about the timeline, you know, in its current form. So Mm -hmm. there are a lot of sacred cows and like things you couldn't do, things you couldn't touch in service of product innovation. And so I think as I look back at it now, Twitter has always had so much potential. And I think in some ways as a company underachieved its potential, right? It's still very important in the world, but it doesn't surprise me that someone like Elon could come along and beyond it being kind of his plaything, really believe that this is a product that one could be a lot more innovative, could have a bigger place in people's lives and a platform that a lot more people could use around the world because the active user base for Twitter is still only around 300 million people. I haven't looked at the numbers recently. Right. And so compare that to Facebook, which is one and a half billion, two billion at this point, active users across all the different platforms. And so, you know, Twitter a company definitely underachieved its potential. But it was always a very special place with incredible people who really, truly cared about the fact that it wasn't just a company maximizing profits, but that it kind of represented a public good in the world that people counted on, a space for for open communication.
0: When, when it's all said and done, I mean, clearly Elon is the villain uh, in, in in this chapter of, of Twitter right now, but I think a lot of people are going to look mm. back who have a similar sentiment to you and just saying how special it was and the potential for it, how underutilized it is by the world's population. I mean, there are 8 billion people in the world. They're, you know, Most of them are connected over the internet, yet there's 300 million or so monthly active users on this platform. When you look at Facebook that has a third of the population who use this mm-hmm. thing. And obviously, you know, Alphabet has like six or seven properties with over a billion users. And the problem that I have is like, you got to look back. I mean, it really, I think you, the probably the most innovative period when it reached some sort of scale was in that period that you were there where, where it, the company had gone public, right? And they were trying out mm-hmm. a, a lot of new things. And it seems like every single new product offering fell by the wayside, whatever it was. If it yeah. wasn't, and digital ads it wasn't going to be the thing that won out and then you go back to that sacred cow of the timeline and it didn't speak to product innovation and therefore a lot of people if you weren't in tech or politics or sports or entertainment had a really hard time figuring out why they might use this product like i you know you know over the years i sent so many tweets to my parents of things that i thought they might be interested in they have no idea like how to access that information or whatever elon i'm not a fan of elon and and i certainly Know dozens of ex-Twitter people, and very few people have been that kind of outward, you know, about their opinions about what's going on. But yeah. to say the least, I, I don't think anyone's particularly happy. I, I think Jack did a tremendous disservice to the company, the platform, its ability to grow. And once he got into this Bitcoin rabbit hole, I think he thought of it as a protocol, not as a company. And, and to be frank, he was running it into the ground. You know, I, I mean, so it was ripe for an activist. To take it over. But the fact is, I don't think Elon, he might try to innovate on product. He has definitely made the whole platform a lot more divisive. I think you would probably agree. And we could say, well, it's only been a month. I just don't see it getting a whole heck of a lot of better. And I think that-
3: uh, I, I, I don't know. I, I have yeah. nothing but unpopular opinions when it comes to Twitter. And they will probably be even more unpopular with former employees of Twitter, because I don't think this, this view is uniform by any means. And by the way, I have a lot of M- empathy for the people who just left Twitter. They yeah. were affected. It's like someone came into their home, set it on fire. And yeah. There's a lot of anger. There's a lot of resentment. I understand where that comes from and I have empathy for that for sure. You know, things could have been handled a lot better by Elon, but you know, I think the underlying premise that this is a platform where we're, that is not yet done in terms of product innovation is correct. Right. And so I think if he's able to attract the right kind of talent going forward, like my two biggest questions for him are essentially like, can you get amazing people to come join and build with you now? Right now that you have control, now that it's a private company, now that you've done the culture reset. Right. Change management is hard, but he's doing it his own way and like it or don't like it. Like the question is, can you get amazing people to come join you and innovate from here? And two, like, can he grow as a leader, as a founder, as a CEO, to really navigate what it takes to, again, lead a company that is essentially a public good? And That's how people see it in the world. And there's a special responsibility that comes with that. And it means operating in a lot of gray areas that are really uncomfortable and not so clear cut. And you just have to embrace that. He has been very- Well,
0: who has to to embrace it? I mean, because at the end of the day, he owns this thing. He took out $13 billion in debt to buy it. He sold tens of billions of dollars of Tesla stock to buy it. He rooked a a bunch of his pals who just like being in his ecosystem to kind of help him on the equity front. But if you think about what he's done in a month, he paid $44 billion for this thing. You already had a 9% stake. It's probably easily worth half of that right now. And then when you look at some of the public comps that are trading, that monetize better and and, and obviously relying on advertising, they're trading at much lower valuations. So to me, for his ability, and you just said it, it's, it's this public utility or this public good or whatever, that doesn't speak to being able to kind of bring this Thing back out in a way that the financials or the economics work where it's going to be something that's going to be able to self-sustain, you know what I mean? Because mm-hmm. just the natural forces but, of gravity, yeah. of, of, you know what I mean, are going to – financial gravity are going to come to play.
3: The fact that the world views Twitter as a public good, a public square is exactly why the company is so challenging to lead. And not anyone can just come in and do it, including former founders, right? So, you know, I think that the reality of Twitter as a consumer product is there's a lot that Twitter can do from here in order to create more interaction with the platform, increase engagement, unlock new use cases. And I'll just give you some examples. Like one super obvious one. We have this discussion so many times that Twitter was investing in DMs, investing in DMs as one of the mainstream chat apps back when WeChat was emerging and Facebook Messenger and Snap was coming on the scene. There were a lot of opportunities in the past for Twitter to truly invest and build out the direct messaging experience, right? And make that a first party experience in the product. And that hasn't happened before, right? I think Twitter is a place where creators like yourself and others congregate. There's a lot more that you can do to give creators the ability to create video and streaming and distribution through the platform Right. Like this is all product innovation that is not so radical, but I think infused into Twitter could give it new life and and give it value, because I think what you're really fighting with Twitter is the decade of consumer behavior that you've trained on the platform, which is like, hey, we're entitled to be here for free right and you know we don't really want things to change and we we kind of have trained users into that mode and now we're introducing change he's introducing change and people don't like it but the thing that i think all twitter employees former alumni can agree upon is that anytime twitter did anything it was wildly unpopular like there was no way to truly ever please the broader user base because it's so diverse And it's so mixed. And there's so many different ways that people derive value from the platform. You're never going to please everybody. And so he's definitely a bull in a China shop. Like you don't have to be a jerk to be a CEO. And I think we should hold him accountable for that. Right. But I understand why someone leading Twitter might say like, look, I'm going to set a direction. I'm going to try new things. And if it's unpopular, that's okay. Because it's very hard to innovate from a place of, you know, like let's just make sure it's non-controversial.
0: No, that and that 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 makes perfect sense but you just ended that with non-controversial he literally tweeted follow the rabbit which is a q anon dog whistle today to his 130 million followers i mean it's it's turning into a thing by the time the next time that you and i pod i mean like this is going to be a, a very different situation it's gonna be out of his hands as it relates to advertisers and the sorts of organizations that actually want to use the platform and when you think about the dms that you just mentioned i mean facebook they bought whatsapp for what 22 billion dollars in 2000 and 14, they've never monetized it, okay? And they're going to have to figure out ways how to monetize it. You're telling me given the low sponsorship and the poor engagement that Twitter on its very small user base relative to Facebook has, that they're going to be able to do a better job just because Elon's in there? I don't think so. You know, I, I think he's got a lot of challenges, and and I, again, I, I, think, I think when you talk... I think right,
3: though. I, there's no point in setting the house on fire completely, and that, that that's, that's a bit of what he's doing, right? There are things that are working. The advertiser relationships are important to the company, the organizations, you know, like people have to be, feel good about being on the platform. And that's what I mean when I say like, you don't have to be a jerk to be a great entrepreneur and founder and CEO. And I think he's basking in this reality TV show that he's created for himself. And it's very, it at least appears from the outside in to be very self indulgent. That's really dangerous because it will alienate people and it will alienate people who can come and help build the company with you.
0: The talent pool that he has to draw from right now is fairly well divided. And that's not a great way to build. I I mean, I think you would agree a world-changing sort of platform where you can have billions of people, not just hundreds of millions.
3: I'll just say this one last thing on Twitter and then let's talk about anything else. Yeah, anything else. Quietly, when you talk to people behind the scenes, you know, even extreme sort of Elon fans, I would say, I think the question and the thing that does not sit well with a lot of different people is, you know and I mean, like in tech, is he surrounding himself with the right people? You know, it does seem like there's a few people with very loud voices who are very influential on him. And I don't know if that's true or not. I don't have any visibility on the inside, but oftentimes when you're a very successful founder CEO, like you have to surround yourself with people who will truly challenge you and listen to them and allow yourself to be challenged. Right. And if that's not happening, it usually starts to go sideways.
0: I suspect that's not exactly happening. Let's talk about this without going in depth about it. It's probably far less controversial, but you were at Uber. Again, a hyper growth, a very disruptive I can't time. believe
3: you just described Uber as far less controversial. I've well, never heard that before.
0: But but it's funny, you know, right <laughs> There's now. First time for everything. Well, no, but the period in which you were there in the lead up to Travis leaving in 2019, I feel like a lot of folks were really embracing this changing technology, unless you owned a bunch of taxi medallions. You know what I mean? Like it was something that people thought, here's a confluence of technologies that really could make a whole heck of a lot of things better, right? And so when I think about the narrative, and this was one that was really easy for anybody to kind of just kind of conceptualize there is your car sitting in your garage is used about 3% of the time. Here's an app where you Mm -hmm. can trust, you can put your credit card information. It's really slick tech. They know where you are. They know where you want to go. They're going to get you there safe and it's cheaper. And it was going to change the way cities were built. It was going to change the way transportation happened. It was going to change everything. Then the pandemic, it's like lights Mm -hmm. out, right? And, And that is something that happened to a lot of different industries. And then the whole narrative changed a bunch. And so here you have a company that was growing. It was never Profitable. It was not expected to be profitable for a very long time, but losses obviously ballooned. Revenues went to zero, and then it started growing again. We opened back up, and and it's funny. Yeah. Like from an innovation standpoint, there hasn't been a whole heck of a lot there, but the path to profitability better speed up because we talked about the market to start this conversation a little bit. It's pretty unforgiving. For money losing companies, even though that they're growing. That's something of the past, right? If you think about it, and especially in a rising rate environment. And so I guess my question to you is when I think about what you're charged with doing at NEA, you're thinking about things, the future of work, you're thinking about marketplaces and you're thinking about SaaS and a lot of these things that were probably pillars of the Uber story from the early days into its hyper growth. Talk to me about some of the things that remind you of Uber that, that come across your desk, some of the entrepreneurs that you meet, some of the Maybe it's more like thematics. What what are some of the things that you think are gonna be the sorts of Ubers of the next 10 years?
3: I'll answer your question, but first I'll say, I literally walked across 10th Street from Twitter to Uber when I made that transition back in the day and the two company cultures could just not have been more different. Uber was highly entrepreneurial, even at scale, very ambitious and committed to having different product lines, which is what I think has really helped the company to kind of ride out this really volatile period of the pandemic. If it's not rides, it's eats. If it's not eats, it's freight, right? It's a multi-product company. And that gives you a lot of resilience when you have these kind of recessionary or just unpredictable macroeconomic moments. So I'm rooting for Uber. I'm rooting for Uber to continue to grow and and become profitable. But you know, the things that I go back to, and you realize actually when you're an investor, just how hard it is to kind of find these things in one company and how special it is, is one, consumer products that are truly magical it is that moment of magic when you use it you see how your life could be different and chat gpt like we just all had that moment with it whether it's that or something else but like we felt that moment of magic it's something different you can see how it changes your life you could see how you could use this every single day or week you're like wow i didn't even know this could exist or that i wanted it and that's a very high bar but you do see consumer products that are innovating in that way. And that's really, really exciting for an investor. The other thing that I look for, and that obviously was a big part of making Uber successful as a marketplace and as a global platform, is network effects. So within Uber, we had compounding both local and kind of national, global, cross-product network effect. And when I look at marketplaces, I look for network effects. How does the utility of the marketplace or the product increase with both sides of the marketplace coming together? is this viral? Like, are people talking about it? Is it a verb? Is it something that you're like at a dinner party? You're like, oh my God, you got to try this new app. Does it have that kind of word of mouth? And I think there's always something with consumer companies that is about capturing the cultural zeitgeist or the moment when there's behavior change. And I think Uber was part of this moment when early days of the sharing economy early days of mobile commerce when you know we just started realizing that you could tap your phone and get anything. You could make transportation really personalized and convenient to you. And that was a really radical idea at the time. And so today there's always the next marketplace. There's a lot happening in B2B marketplaces, marketplaces for digital goods. OpenSea is a great example of that. There will be more. With Gen Z, we're seeing a lot of innovation in consumer social how do we communicate? How do we have fun with friends in UA? Can we get to really personalized content and search that is even beyond what we experience on TikTok today? And so there's a lot of exciting stuff out there in consumer right now, but it does tend to boil down to, is it viral? Is it network effects driven? Is it magical? And does it have sort of broad applicability where you're building like in a really massive category? And transportation, by the way, trillion-dollar-plus category. It was easy to see how a company like Uber could reach massive scale and then be the platform for introducing a lot of other products to consumers. Something we, we thought about at Uber and I think is still elusive for consumer in the U.S. is this idea of a super app. There's a lot of different companies that have tried to become that super app, copy the WeChat model in the U.S. It hasn't happened yet, but I think you know that there's still an opportunity there. The question is, do you start with social? Do you start with utilities, Uber is a utility, or do you start with fintech as kind of your wedge into that super app experience? But it feels like Founders are trying to crack the code on that again.
0: That's one of the reasons why supposedly Elon's very interested in Twitter is this X app and and thinking about his interest in crypto. And I think these are things that Jack dabbled into is also things that maybe the A sixteen Z crowd were kind of interested mm-hmm. when they when they back Clubhouse. But it's interesting to me how few consumer social apps have been able just to gain any traction. I have 17 and 19-year-old daughters, and so I've seen almost everything that has has made it onto their iPhones over the last 10 years or so, it's really ephemeral. Snapchat was six or seven years ago. It's obviously TikTok. And, And TikTok, I know this sounds idiotic, There's a scenario where TikTok could be as ephemeral as the Vine. It really is depending upon the time in which you're going to define ephemeral, right? Or transitory. That's something that we do Mm -hmm. in financial markets punditry. We spent a year debating the length of time of transitory. But there's been really nothing that has bubbled up. My kids use be real how the hell would you monetize be real? You know what I mean? Like the list kind of goes on and on. And the other thing I'll just say is that the stuff that seems to catch fire and feel like magic when you're in the pandemic and you're stuck at home and you're not working with your colleagues, and then all of a sudden you get an invite behind the velvet rope to this clubhouse thing and all these fancy VCs or tech people are on it and this really amazing conversation that just happened organically is happening. And then you look a few months later and it's gone. The app's gone. I mean, it's just like no one's on it. It's not cool. Twitter had its moment with Spaces, and it's gone. And, and I guess my point is it's like to make this stuff stick. Yeah, like consumers are me. fickle. Consumers
3: are fickle. This is why consumers so hard, I think, for investors and just hard for founders and builders in general, consumer behavior is a notoriously hard to predict. Most of us can't articulate what we want an experience we haven't seen yet. And even when you catch lightning in a bottle, so hard to hold on to it. It's so hard to hold on to it because, you know, and Clubhouse is a perfect example of that, probably scale too fast. I loved it in the early days. The level of intimacy and connection with an early clubhouse was like nothing. I think most of us had experienced before. It made sense in the moment, but it scaled too fast and it became too diluted, too noisy. And it sort of has struggled from there. I think unpacking TikTok is actually really interesting to understand where consumer expectations and behavior is going. Because if you really think about it, TikTok is sort of Rejecting everything that we know to be true about old social media, if you look at the data about why people use TikTok, why they spend hours a day on it, cross sort of different age groups. One is TikTok is fun. It's positive. You're going to watch it for an hour. You're going to feel great. You know, it's entertainment. It makes you feel good. Whereas being on Instagram, Twitter, and doom scrolling in general makes you feel terrible about life. So it's like hitting that emotional button in us that craves positivity and fun and play and entertainment. And it's deeply personalized, right? There's no cold start problem in TikTok. You go in, you're entertained from the very first moment you hit that screen. Whereas Twitter, like Twitter's work, man, you've got to figure out who to follow, how to use the product. That's too much work. It's too big of a cognitive load. Most people will never get there, which is part of the reason the platform has stayed subscale. And so I think within TikTok, we have an indication of sort of what I think will shape consumer social going forward. It will be very personalized content. AI makes that easier. TikTok is already heavily AI driven. It knows who you are. It can serve up addictive short form content that is deeply personalized to you. It is also a creative canvas. Like people want to have fun, just like Snapchat was fun in the early days with the rainbow vomit filters and AR lenses. What does the next generation of that look like with generative media? Because now we can do new stuff we weren't able to do before. And so personalization creative self-expression we haven't seen it yet but there will be a company that emerges maybe it's not be real maybe it's something else that kind of creates a creative communication canvas for for the next generation and i'm definitely excited to see it so if someone's building it, come talk to me.
0: You should call Ann anyway and picture your consumer marketplace or social idea. But one of the things that's interesting to me is that calls for TikTok being banned here in the U.S. for a whole host of reasons. All of our social platforms are not allowed behind China's firewall there. And you're seeing a bunch of red states ban TikTok apps on employees' phones, fine, mm. state issued, whatever. But I guess if it were to be banned and you know, our our country is obviously in a bit of a tit for tat with China on a whole host of economic issues, you could really see this as low-hanging fruit. And again, the Chinese may not care because they have cracked down on their own digital companies in a very harsh way over the last year and a half. But I suspect in the seat that you sit at as you mentor and advise entrepreneurs who are coming up with crazy ideas and you're trying to do what you can to help them achieve these goals, TikTok being banned here in the U.S. would be a boon for, I think, social innovation because so much of what we've learned and then maybe the appetite for that from our consumers. So maybe there's something in 2023 along the geopolitical lines that could be really interesting for U.S. social innovation. What do you think of
3: that? It's possible. I I have mixed feelings about TikTok. Going away because yes, would it leave a lot of white space for new consumer social apps to come forward? Probably. But there's a lot of companies who are getting a ton of value marketing their products on TikTok. It's a great distribution channel. It's a great channel for a lot of consumer companies and consumer brands for growth and user acquisition. So if you take TikTok away, I think a lot of companies would take issue with that. It's not all good. But the things that I see sort of coming up and where founders are really thinking creatively right now and building new products is one kind of personalized, highly curated, short form news alternatives, sort of piggybacking on TikTok, but focusing on like, how will you consume information and media and using AI to kind of curate and summarize that information in new ways. Um, That's just really easy to scroll and consume. There's another company that is doing an amazing job of building a private community, a private Reddit and community for college campuses, very much like the Facebook early days, really thinking about peer moderation, authenticity positivity as kind of bedrocks of this community social experience. And so there's a ton of innovation happening. But yeah, at the the end of the day, like if you're a consumer app, you have to figure out how to get to a zeitgeist moment that puts you on the map with a lot of consumers. And then Build kind of a user behavior that really is sticky over time, because what you're really vying for is like not the tech crunch, you know, media article, but a permanent place in people's lives, in their attention span, on their home screen. How do you embed yourself within people's lives in a way that is truly meaningful to them and maybe a little bit addictive, but also meaningful? And I think Gen Z is very ready for new companies to come forward and really speak to how they see themselves and how they want to communicate and the ways that they want to build connections digitally first, of course, but in a way that's positive and authentic and expressive. And I don't think they can run away fast enough from Facebook and Instagram and everything that I essentially kind of have come to know kind of been using for the last decade.
0: What comes next will be pretty interesting. Again, I'm not ruling, you know, Elon Musk and his goal to turn this product upside down. The idea of a, like a super app, a WeChat here in the States, it seems like something that we probably would be closer to rejecting than just embracing. When you think about there's four companies that have over trillion dollar market caps that are ruling our lives, if you will. And so I wonder if we get to a point where, you know, we start to see really some strategic M&A. Look at like Snap sitting out there all alone. It's got like a $15 billion enterprise value. It seems like a cheap social asset relative to what Elon just paid for Twitter. And again, it's probably one of those places, the way you describe TikTok, you're not doom scrolling Snap. You use it for communication. You use it to kind of feel good and watch user-created content. And and maybe there's some bolt-ons to a product like that that could make it stickier as you get older and might age out of something like that. I think there's probably a period of... Some sort of strategic M&A that happens in early 2023 or starts that way. We're already seeing private equity away from this leverage buyout. And Twitter, look at some of these funds, like Rick and I just talked about, Toma Bravo, who are just looking at really unique valuation opportunities to take companies private. So I just think there's a whole host of things that might happen. And you might see some of these deals where private equity partners with another company to buy this other asset. So maybe that's what we have to look forward to in the near term as these markets try to bottom out. Well, listen, Ann. I really appreciate you joining me on OK Computer. I really hope you'll come back. And um, I really I felt- hope
3: you're right about M&A. It would be great for our ecosystem. Yes, right. I hope you're right.
0: The IPO market has been, you know, obviously – pretty horrible for all of 2022. Um, SPAC as a exit vehicle um, was something that did not make it into 2022. M&A has been out there sparingly, right? But I think that probably a lot of those things come back in 2023, probably the back half of that. And then it's going to be great times for VC. You guys can get back to sharpening your pencils. and signing. It, it'll be a
3: great time for companies not named Meta to be acquisitive. When it comes yeah. to consumer, if you're not yeah. named meta or Google, you can be very cunning and opportunistic in this time.
0: Matter, matter of fact. All right. And thanks for joining us. I hope you come back really soon. Happy holidays and speak to you in 2023. Thanks
3: for having me, Dan.
0: If you like what you heard, make sure to hit follow and leave us a review. It helps other people find the show. We also want to hear from you. Email us at contact at riskreversal.com.